Good morning, Resonate family. My name is Becky. I'm one of the pastors here at Resonate. Thank you for tuning in with us today. I'm so glad you could connect with us from your homes. At Resonate, we are a community who loves like Jesus. We know that loving like Jesus is strengthened and meaningful when we share these core values as a community. Daily devotion, prayer, freedom from strongholds, serving the community, sacrificial generosity, sharing and knowing our stories, and celebration. This is the second week of our Relationship Rescue series. Last week, Pastor Kevin unpacked the biblical framework of relationships. Today, we are exploring the question of why we hide. When I was a kid, we lived on one of those blocks where everyone knew each other. Our families were connected and we did life together. Picnics, barbecues, playdates, and game nights. During summer nights, all the kids between about ages 7 to 16 would split into two teams and play Ditchem. If you've never played Ditchem, just the name is probably enough to make you want to pass. It sounds kind of mean, right? Well, this was actually the best game ever. It's basically team hide-and-seek. But we couldn't start until it got dark enough. Now today, I can't even imagine letting a seven-year-old run free past dark. But that was then. Once it was dark, I mean past sundown dark, we divided into two teams. One team would split up and hide all over the block. We had boundary lines. The other team would count, then seek. My friends and I had the best hiding places passed down to us from the older siblings. Over fences, between garages, on top of sheds, under bushes. Everyone had to be found or make it to base for a win. We all love a good game of hide-and-seek, except when it comes to life. The stakes are so much higher in real life, as they were back in the Garden of Eden in the Genesis creation narrative. It's a story most of us are familiar with. This story is the background of our teaching today. So let's go back and take a look at that story now, starting with Genesis 2.25. I'll be reading through chapter 3, verse 10, from the CEB, or Common English Bible. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't embarrassed. The snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, Don't eat from it, and don't touch it, or you will die. The snake said to the woman, You won't die. God knows that on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious food 
and that the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. They both saw clearly and knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. During that day's cool evening breeze, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God in the middle of the garden's trees. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The man replied, I heard your sound in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, we're not talking about marriage or sex here today. We're talking about something much broader. This story comes after the creation narrative where God creates order out of chaos. It's not just the kind of order where everything is in its place. The food is put away. The kitchen is clean. It's the type of order where everything is in relationship to each other, what we call integration. God creates an amazing world where nothing exists in and of itself. Everything is integrated. Integrated, integration, rather, can be described as a system in which its subset parts reflect differentiation and linkage. Each part is differentiating or maturing in a proper way while growing in its linkage or connection to the others. For the mind to grow and mature, its domains must differentiate and link to the other domains. This is a pattern we see in all systems of integration. Right from the very beginning, we see that humankind is integrated, is both dust and breath, embodied and relational. In chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. Then God forms Eve, the mother of all living things, out of Adam, the human. Humankind is integrated with God, with, e with the earth, and with each other. What happens next in our text today reveals an unraveling of this connectedness. From integration to the very opposite state of disintegration, which is an over arcing theme of the Genesis narrative. There is a fascinating feature of integration in creation and its relationship to shame that has been discovered through a particular area of brain research called interpersonal neurobiology, or IPNB. Kurt Thompson, in his book, The Soul of Shame, describes IPNB as a fluid emerging process that is both embodied and relational. To say the mind is emerging refers to the idea that the whole activity of the mind is greater than the sum of its parts. 
To say the mind is embodied refers to its extension of the nervous system. Anxiety is often felt in the chest or gut or can be noticed by an increased pulse or sweaty palms. To say the mind is relational means its capacity to do what it does is dependent on relationships. The task of the mind is to regulate the flow of energy and information. Shame has a tendency to disrupt this process by disconnecting various functions of the mind from one another, leading each domain of the mind disconnected as we feel disconnected from others. Basically, shame is not only a feeling or an experience, but it is a neurological process that occurs in our bodies as well. Shame disrupts the process of integration. Back in Eden, evil presents an alternative direction to God's integrated plan, but it's presented on the silver platter of understanding, of reason, of having all the answers versus living in the mystery of God's inherent goodness and beauty. And the result is a decision that leads to mistrust and shame and hiding. You see, when we begin to mistrust the good story we are created to live in, we start looking at other stories to fit our lives into but these are never the story we were meant to live in. What does living another story look like? We might feel like we're not enough, allowing comparison or FOMO, which is the fear of missing out, to dictate our decisions as we get lost in our social media feeds. So we grab and hide another form of this Hebrew word, Haba is to hide in secret or means imprisoned. We hide or become imprisoned behind the fig leaves of accomplishments, possessions, places, dreams, memories, and friendships. David Benner in his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, describes this surrounding ourselves with attachments like wrapping and winding ourselves with experiences and projected images like bandages in order to make ourselves perceptible and acceptable to those around us. These bandages create a facade, a shell of a person, the false self. Sounds like a great Halloween mummy costume. The core of the false self is the belief that my value depends on one, what I have, two, what I can do, and three, what others think of me. The problem, it works. Tragically, we become skilled at projecting our false self, causing more layers, more distance from our true self. This is comforting for a while until we tire of the endless work of projection and protection and the hollow bandage shell implodes and suffocates the life of the true self. 
As a teenager and young adult, having experienced abuse and abandonment as a child, then to be raised by a totally different family, I spent most of my life trying to figure out my story. When I look back at my childhood, I saw resentment, pain, and shame. When I looked at my friends' lives and their families, I saw something I thought I was missing. This led to years of either hiding my shame-filled past or pretending to live a different story so that I would fit in with my peers, which actually led to more shame. A few friends saw through the facade and loved me in spite of my shell. It wasn't until I began to let the light of Jesus heal the painful parts of my past that I was able to embrace my true story, even the pain and shame of the story, and begin to live into who I was in Christ, my very truest story, that my whole life began to take a new turn. The more I learned my true story, that I am made in the image of God, for God's pleasure and joy, the more I was able to stop living other versions of a story that I was never meant to live. And once I began to lean into this vision God had for my life, I was able to dream the dreams God had instilled in my heart somewhere along the way. You'd think by now, with John Bradshaw's Healing the Shame that Binds You from the 1980s to the last decade's work of Brene Brown, we would, have, we would have shame figured out by now. But apparently, it's been around for a long, long time. The enemy is so desperate for us to believe another story that it will disguise itself into anything that will catch our attention, a snake or a shiny, beautiful thing. This is the insidious and invisible understory of shame. Thompson, in his book, again, The Soul of Shame, says, Shame is not just a consequence of something our first parents did. It is the emotional weapon evil uses to corrupt relationships and disintegrate vocational vision and creativity. Shame is a weapon evil uses to derail us from our true story, from living in loving relationships with ourselves, with each other, with the earth, and with God. Late last month, an Amtrak train was headed from Chicago to Seattle, the Empire Builder. Have you ever ridden an Amtrak train? Once I rode a train from San Luis Obispo up to Pendleton, Oregon, stopping in Portland along the way. It's called the Coast Starlight Tour. It was a beautiful, beautiful train ride. Well, I have friends who had intended to ride this very train home from their vacation in the Windy City last month, making a round-trip train tour. But before their vacation began, they ended up changing their plans and opted for a flight home instead. Now, somewhere along the way in northern Montana last month, this train derailed, sending a few cars careening and crashing off the track, wounding several and killing three people. This is a very terrifying story 
and one that they're still investigating. This story is not to say that living God's story is a destination. It can help us, though, to see the devastating effects that come from some, some unknown or unseen element that ends up changing the trajectory and causing pain and destruction in hindering the intended vision and plan. When God made this world, God's purpose was for goodness, beauty, and joy to flourish. An event occurred in the garden that disrupted God's intended vision and plan. The good news is that God's love, as the song says, is relentless, pursuing the reconciliation of all things by sending a second Adam in Jesus to restore all creation to God's heart and vision. So the question I have for us to reflect on in closing today is, what or whose story are you living? I want to encourage all of us to live into God's story, to step into the reconciled, integrated with all of creation, life, God has for us, connected in re reconciled and loving relationship with ourselves, with each other, with the created world we live in, and with our creator. We no longer need to hide. It's time for us to live out our true stories.